I'd like to start by offering you uh, a few questions to explore. Uh, now, this is pretty unfair of me because they're pretty big questions. <clears throat> so, you might want to uh, spend a little time now or, or actually take them away. Um, and be with them as long as feels fruitful for you or interesting for you. Or if you're listening at home, you can press pause for, again, as long as it feels helpful. But let me just start this way to open something up. Um, one question. What do you love about the path? What do you love about your path? What do you love in practice? And what comes when you drop that question in? What responses from your being? What do you love about the path? What do you love in the path and in practice? come, responses come from your being and their resonances in the heart, in the soul, in the body, in the emotions, sensing their effects on you, the effects of the responses, the effects of the questions. What do you love about the path? There's a whole stream of different responses and answers and things that you love, aspects that you love. Maybe it's one aspect or thing in particular. So I said, as I said, this is very unfair because on and ask a second question, related but different. What do you want from the path, from practice? What do you want? Where are you going? Where do you hope that you're going? Where do you conceive that you're going on this path? Or put it in different terms, we could, some people feel themselves moving towards something, what are you moving towards, or in a different kind of <clears throat> conception or image, what are you opening to, or hope, hoping to move towards, or differently, hoping to open to, to receive even, different images, sort of, 
active and receptive, if you like. Or... So what do you want? Where are you going? What are you moving towards? What are you opening to? different words here, you know, what's your sense, conception, image of the goal, the destination, the aim, or if you prefer the language, uh, the result or the fruit of the path, or just the direction that you're moving in. So whatever words or way of articulating it helps you. What is it that you're after? What is it that you want? And again, is it possible to kind of feel in to the effects of that question, the effects of the responses in the different uh, dimensions of the being, in the body, in the energy body, in the, in the heart, in the soul, in the mind? You can linger with the answers and feel their resonances, sense their effects on you. Some responses have come to each of these questions. What do you love about the path? And what do you want from the path, so to speak? But let me ask you this as well. And I, I'm aware of how unfair this is, really, in the time that we have right now. But uh, let me ask you this as well. Do the responses that have come so far, do they feel complete, exhaustive? Or is there the feeling that Yes, that's part of it, but there's something left over, something that I haven't quite articulated yet, or perhaps even discerned or identified. Or is it, no, that's pretty much it, that's it. Yeah, so it's not a right or wrong here, I'm just, just, just asking. So you can, as I said, you can come back to that, uh, these questions and, and uh, reflect on them and be with them in any, any time you want, of course, for as long as you want. But let's move on now and let me um, bring to bear a few perspectives on all this, um, on path, on goal, etc., um, from the point of view or involving um, many of the ideas and the uh, directions of inquiry and exploration that we're dealing with and, exp and uh, focusing on on this retreat.
So, let me start by saying, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know if you realize this, uh, you may or may not realize it, but I would say that to some extent, to some extent, um, the conception that we harbor or entertain of the path and of the goal, let's call it awakening, and the fantasy of the path and of the awakening, to some extent, are are going to be conditioned by what we read and hear. So the very way I think of the path and I think of the goal, or what it includes, or what it is, or what direction it's um, going to take me, or supposed to take me, etc., what it includes, what it doesn't, all that to some extent will be conditioned um, by what I'm exposed to. Reading, hearing, teachers, this, that, others, friends, etc. And some of that, of course, is dependent just on the era, the age that we live in, the time that we are in. I've mentioned this before, I don't know how obvious it is, the, the sense of self that we have now, that we just feel, or most people would feel, is completely obvious. This is what myself involves, this is what myself includes, this is the kind of interiority I have. This is the way I not just think of the self, but feel the self, experience the self. That sense of self, and also the freedoms that I conceive or feel or hope or aspire to, for that self, the kinds of freedom and the ranges and directions of freedom for that self are different now than they were in 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 the time of the, the uh, of the Buddha in India. One just has to read the suttas to to notice the complete absence of certain kinds of relationships with the self, both difficult and um, exhilarating, or or interesting, or opening, or complex. So that our very sense of freedom, of course, the freedom of, for that self, or the freedoms, plural, for that self and of that self, are, are actually different. They're conditioned by the age that we live in and what comes to us from, from the outside, from the era, etc. So to me, it's, it's, it's interesting to realize that. It does something to realize that. And then we might ask, on the back of uh, such a realization, then if we are, our views of all this and our fantasies of all this path and awakening are conditioned to some extent by my environment, um, what is a conception and a fantasy that is, so to speak, authentic for me? Or am I just a kind of puppet pulled this way by what I'm hearing or reading and what's kind of in the air around me in, in my culture, in my time, in my society, in my spiritual uh, sort of... Uh, fashions, for want of a better word. What would be an authentic uh, conception and fantasy of path and awakening for me? Authentic to me. I mean, authentic means, like, to, to my, uh, born of myself in, in, in the kind of independence, actually related to the meaning of independence. Now that question, what's an authentic conception and fantasy of the path, is not a question that uh, the Buddha and other um, spiritual teachers of different ages, would it would never even have occurred to them to ask it. Partly because we live in a very individualist culture now that didn't um, 
that whole way of conceiving the self and choice, uh, it just didn't exist back then. The Buddha would never have asked, what's an authentic conception for you uh, 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 of path or of awakening? So that's interesting too. And I wonder whether even for us these days it's really a helpful question. Perhaps a better question, I think a better question would be the way of conceiving and fantasizing of path and awakening are they soul-making for you? Or which ways are soul-making for you? That's a difference. Again, it's related, but it's a different question. So what ways of conceiving and fantasizing, imagining path and awakening are soul-making for you? That's actually quite a, a radical difference in approach and questioning. Now, notice with that, that um, if, we, if we come back to this point about that we are to some extent conditioned, our views are what we can conceive of as a path and as uh, what awakening is, is to some degree, to some extent conditioned by the culture. Um, <clears throat> whether it's conditioned to a great degree uh, for me or to a very small degree, uh, my my views and my conceptions, my my images of path and awakening, the de- how much it is conditioned for me by the culture, um, is actually not the important factor. So it might be a lot. What's important, or it might be a little, but what's important is not the so-called authenticity or independence. It's the soul making. That's the test. So just like when we talked about in imaginal practice, it doesn't matter if you deliberately introduce an image or change an image in some way and you think, oh, is that just my ego? I shouldn't be doing this. It doesn't matter. The test is in the soul-making. So here, too, the degree or the extent to which it feels like, well, this is just conditioned from my culture, from what I've heard, that doesn't matter. From this point of view, the question is, is it soul-making? How soul-making is it? Is it supportive of soul-making or not? Do you understand? But notice, too, a more kind of radical uh, distinction from the ways we usually think about these things is that the goal, aim, destination, direction, result, fruit, whatever word uh, you favor there, the goal, uh, let's use that one for now, that you conceive um, or fantasize is not just um, conceived of, the question is not just, is that helpful for you to conceive and imagine that way? Is it healing or is it freeing, whatever those words mean? But is it soul-making? So that's quite a, a, I would say, a radical difference of, of approach, of orientation, of entering into these questions. <clears throat> Traditionally, I was in in the Buddhist tradition, at least. What, what seems to me unavoidable if you if you read the suttas, but actually I really don't uh, um, care whether it's um, so-called historically accurate or not. It's not important, especially not important for what I want to unfold in this in this talk. But let's say traditionally um, in the Pali Canon. The goal, destination, aim, fruit, etc. of the path was a realization of the transcendent unfabricated. 
meaning this transcending of the world of perception. Not just the world of labeling, but the world of sense experience uh, and the world of any kind of sense of experience of subject, any kind of experience of object, of space and time. And this dimension, ayatana, realm uh, of, of the uh, unfabricated or the deathless, um, transcendent realm was something the Buddha put a lot of emphasis for and one way of you know, intuiting, sensing, understanding the coherence of the whole Pali Canon is all a movement um, of less, lessening fabrication, culminating in this opening to the unfabricated. Something utterly beyond anything that we can say of it or describe it except by talking it talking about it for the most part in the negative as, as the Buddha mostly does. Not this, not that, beyond this, know this there, know that there, etc. Um, uh, something utterly, utterly mystical and transcendent there. Now, I'm not spending a long, long time talking about that in this talk, but I have in other places, etc. Some people, my experience, are uh, very interested in this. Uh, and they hear about this realm, this dimension, this possibility, this opening of the transcendent, unfabricated, the deathless, whatever you want to call it. And and it really sparks their interest. There's a fire there. Some people yearn for this opening, uh, to move towards that, to know it in this lifetime, etc. And it's actually a central uh, yearning and thrust of, of the whole way they feel the path, as it seems to me it really is in the Pali Canon as well. And some people, other people, hear about this or read about it and are not interested in it at all, for, for different reasons, at all. In the tradition, so that's just, just something to notice, um, and in the tradition, um, this realization or opening to the transcendent unfabricated was intimately tied up with um, the end of suffering, so that in the moment of, let's say, experiencing that, for want of a better word, opening to that, the moment of unfabricating, that comes about through a complete um, uh, dying down in the moment of the factors of um, clinging, push-pull, including avidya, uh, ignorance, in the moment, so that, that propel fabrication, the clinging and the avidya propel fabrication, if you know the teachings of dependent origination, in the moment when those are completely quieted, there is no fabrication of perception happening of self, other, subject, object, world, time, space, etc., etc. Um, the arahant, the so-called completely awakened person, has just erased or eroded or cut off all clinging and all um, avidya, and so... Um, at the end of their life, they are not reborn. In other words, there's not the propulsion to create more fabrication of perception. So, no perception, no world is reborn, if you like, put it that way. They are not reborn into the world. So it's intimately tied up with the view of ending suffering because one ends rebirth. And this is also a movement in the Pali Canon. Getting off the wheel of rebirth, just ending that whole uh, cycle of death and rebirth. Etc. So this movement to the unfabricated is intimately tied up with ending suffering. 
tying this back to the opening talk, if I remember, we talked about, um, okay, but some people have a yearning to know this unfabricated, this transcendent, a desire, deep desire for that. And it's not completely um, captured in uh, or described as a movement that all they want is to end suffering. There is wrapped up in that yearning for them. There is the desire and the longing of of the mystic. You understand? So it's not only captured by, or even primarily in some instances, uh, described as or captured by a desire to end suffering. I said there's a whole range here for people at different times in their practice, but how much desire... Um, do you or I have for this? How much does any practitioner have for this, um, that opening, that realization? Now, another thing to point out about that is that um, the other kinds of, or let's say, a certain uh, direction of mystical experiences, um, including experiences of um, all kinds of universal oneness, whether it's a oneness of awareness, a kind of cosmic consciousness or infinite consciousness or universal awareness or universal love or the universal ocean of being or there's quite a few possibilities. Um, <clears throat> they all, if you like, are connected on a spectrum of lessening fabrication which has its kind of... Uh, end point, so to speak, in a, in a complete cessation of fabrication. So there are all kind of degrees uh, of less fabrication, if you like. And they're kind of grouped together roughly in, in along, a, along a line, along a thread of lessening fabrication. So that in practicing different ways of letting go of clinging, one moves on that spectrum of fabrication, opens to these different perceptions of less fabrication, which will involve less fabrication of subject and object, self and world, and that split and that concreteness. And uh, one knows and experiences and opens to all the different kinds of beauty of those different kinds of universal onenesses. We'll, we'll come back to that. But there's a tying together in a certain direction of less of a spectrum of lessening fabrication, culminating, if you like, in this unfabricated. One of the things, apart from that um, movement of lessening fabrication, one of the other things that this uh, movement has in common is that there is a beyond there. In all these openings, um, before I've fully opened to them, before I've fully opened to a sense of universal love permeating and being the fabric of all existence or universal awareness or this transcendent completely unfabricated before I fully open to it it constitutes for me a beyond beyond what I already know and what I already experience I might intuit it I might have heard about it I might have had glimpses of it but it's still a beyond and recalling what we've been saying about the whole soul making dynamic where there is a beyond one of the possibilities that constellates, if you like, with or in relation to that beyond is eros, right? Eros involves a beyond, we've said that. So that this whole sense of um, the possibility of 
opening to realizing different kinds of universal oneness, mystical experiences, this transcendent, unfabricated, etc. One of the possibilities that Eros constellates in relation to that for me, for you, and uh, with Eros, then, if it's allowed to do its thing, as we've said, it will then constitute and constellate and start to involve fantasies and images in regard to with, with in relation to that whole beyond and the movement to, towards it and what it what it includes and involves and what's around it and associated with it so that there is the erotic imaginal involving fantasy involving image of awakening of enlightenment, of realization, of the Buddha who showed the way, or other teachers in the past and the present who have realized that which I haven't realized yet fully, or and who are showing me the way, or living that, or um, examples of that, and fancies images of the path and of the self on that path. And all of this, we are saying, is soul-making. Rather than being um, a bad thing, there is beauty that comes with that, with that filling out of the erotic imaginal, that constellation, a constitution of the erotic imaginal there. Um, beauty comes with it, meaningfulness comes with it, a sense of depth, um, soul-making, all of that that we've talked about. So that's one possibility with this beyond, that it constellates eros and everything that that brings and that allows and that starts to involve and galvanize. Another possibility, though, is that it constellates craving. Not eros, but craving. What, why, how? What determines whether it constellates craving or eros? And the pain of craving and the contraction of that what determines, what guides it one way or another, what conditions it, what uh, sends it into craving rather than to eros, or into eros rather than craving. And then, when there is craving and the pain for that, and, and a teacher will often say to a student who's um, then got this aspiration to realize the unfabricated, but they're struggling with it, drop it, drop it. Drop desire, drop striving. It's not about getting anywhere. It's not about achieving anything. Nowhere to go, nothing to do, all that whole rhetoric there. So this is, uh, this is really important. What determines? What happens? You know, we've touched on some of this. It's like, is there a tendency? Do I have a tendency when there is desire for something, to emphasize in my being and my attention the sense of lack there. Uh, there's, I feel the lack more than the desire and the beauty of the desire. Or a self-view gets very um, reified and solidified and stuck in relation to that which I desire. Perhaps I assume, I'm not going to be able to get this. I, Other people might, but I'm not be able to get this. Or um, the self-view constellates and hardens in some kind of um, relationship or construction of self-measurement in relation to this. Where am I on the ladder towards uh, awakening or on this experience or that unfabricate or this thing? And, and measurement comes to be the dominant flavor and all the pain of a, 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 re, a realist conceived self-measurement. 
and the contraction of that. And then what happens when we have that contraction? What do we do with it? And is one of, one, one of the possibilities that issues from a sense of contraction at some point or other is just, I drop it, I just drop it. And I go into some other kind of relationship that has just dropped that desire and that view and that sense of possibility. Or perhaps there is what we touched on <coughs> when I was uh, telling you about that uh, uh, the psychoanalyst uh, D- Douglas, I think his first name was Douglas Fairbairn, and he talked about the anti-libidinal ego defense. That when we fear not being able to have what we desire, or re- being rejected, or the impossibility of getting it, that there's some structures in us that kick into place that actually prevent us even wanting it. Anti-libidinal, they prevent the libido, the eros constituting to even uh, want that and come into relationship. That would just cut it off. Sometimes to the extent we don't even feel the desire at all. So interesting to me and complex and so important what goes on for us um, what constellates out of that possibility of any kind of beyond, beyond what I know, beyond what I already know, what I already experience, what happens with us in relation to that. <clears throat> so, the, a sense of the beyond can uh, constellate eros, as we're saying, when, when it's a, a desirable beyond, it constellates eros as a possibility. But the reverse is al- also true, um, as is so often the case with these dependent origination things, um, that where there is, let's say, a lot of eros in a person's being, in their soul, it's flowing in their life, that lot of eros, um, <clears throat> that fire, that... Movement of, of 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 water, if you like, that eros will uh, constellate a beyond. It, as we've said, it needs eros needs a beyond, and it will discover and create a beyond. Yeah. So the beyond constellates the eros. The eros constellates the beyond. The transcendent, unfabricated, or any of these kind of stages on the way to that of some kind of perception of universal oneness, onenesses, um, are one possibility of beyond, one direction of possibility beyond, uh, of possibilities of beyond, um, if dimensionality is allowed to the sense of existence, to the sense of uh, consciousness, but also to the sense of the, the the fabric of the world. If one allows dimensionality, one of the possibilities is that it moves in this direction, different kinds of onenesses, along the spectrum of, of lessening fabrication until eventually it's the unfabricated, opens the unfabricated. So if dimensionality is allowed, this constellation of a beyond that comes from the eros, one possibility is that. If dimensionality is not allowed, it's not something that the um, psyche or consciousness or the, the logos or whatever um, allows, uh, admits is possible. Come back to this. But then what happens to the eros? Here is a person with um, a fair degree of eros, a fair in the small sense, and it cannot open up into or it cannot open up um, 
other dimensions of perception. So there is um, just a one-dimensional world, this is it, and then that eros, in its wanting more, can't, can't open, get, discover its more, get its more, have, have the, the beauty of the satisfaction, the fulfillment of more, and an endless more in the opening of the perceptions of dimensionalities. It must go, so to speak, flatly outwards, horizontally, and move in one dimension, wider and wider. I need more, I need more, I need more. The Eros wants more always. And so, more this, more that, in the one-dimensional world, more acquiring, endless acquiring of um, experiences or possessions or whatever it is. It's only got one way to go, and that's horizontal. It has no depth uh, of beyond to move into. The beyond is just beyond flatly in terms of more that I can acquire in terms of uh, conquests or relationships or possessions or experiences or whatever it is. Facebook friends. Endless, uh, en- endless wider and wider horizontal movement that, that the, the, the Eros is driven into what we call greed and craving in the, in the Dharma language. And conversely to all this, if there's not much eros um, in in a being, and that could be, you know, because it's blocked for the different reasons that we've touched on, and we can keep going into that and exploring that, how does it get blocked or limited in different ways, the eros and that whole dynamic. Or it could just be, you know, some people, just natural to their being, natural to their soul, is that there's just less eros. Then Some people really have a lot of fire, a lot of kind of you know, rivers, torrents of, of water. There's a lot of eros moving in the soul. There's a soul with a lot of eros and some less so. And there's no judgment here or more or less. The, 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 it's just natural to, to a being. Could say. So I'm certainly open to that, that point of view. The question is whether it's natural to me, this, this much eros, whatever that much is, or whether it's um, blocked, or whether it's kind of forced and I'm straining for an eros, or a torrent or a fire that's actually not natural to the being. Um, but sometimes there's not that much eros, and so there's not enough eros or, uh, to consolate much of a beyond. You understand? Not much eros, not much sense of a beyond that which I haven't yet known and experienced and open to and and penetrated, etc. Um, uh, and the excitement of that and the attraction and the beauty and the longing for that. Not that much eros, therefore not much beyond constellated. But with regard to this uh, transcendent and that whole <coughs> line, if you like, or spectrum of um, lessening fabrication, the different kind of mystical uh, experiences of, let's say, universal um, kind of onenesses, etc. I'll say that. Um, In regard to that, one of the questions is, and and the sort of investigations for us is, um, can we notice for us how the, for for, for a practitioner on the path, if there is a sense, uh, you know, relationship with the transcendent uh, and and that eros for that and desire for that, how it moves and when it moves and why it moves um, between eros and craving. Yeah, and coming out of that question and that investigation is how do I take care? What is involved in taking care of 
the soul-making and the eros in, in my relationship with um, the transcendent. This thing, this dimension, whatever dimension it is that I haven't opened to yet. So, this is a very different way of thinking about this. Can, can I take care of the eros here, and which implicit in that means can I take care of the soul-making? Which means can I take care of the image in all this? with the different aspects. So it means in relation to that object, that erotic object, that whatever specific beyond that I have heard about and I intuit and I glimpse and I want to open to. The object, but also the self. Yeah, remember this imaginal constellation, object, self, world and eros. So can I take care of the eros and the soul making? Um, what does it mean to take care? of the soul-making in relationship to this this kind of beyond, a transcendent beyond, or, or whatever, in that direction. The object, the self, and the eros itself. How do I do that? What's involved in that? How do I care for that? <clears throat> so that's one um, possibility. Let's call it the traditional one and the, the, the movement towards transcendence. The second possibility, which you actually already touched on, is that um, in in you know dimensionality, as as we said, is any sense of dimensionality to existence, let's say, um, to the the way that the world is, um, that is blocked. It's absolutely refused, or at least not supported, in the worldview, or for whatever reason, it's blocked. Then what we get in our, as we said, in our, um, from our small definition of eros, wanting more, wanting more contact, etc. Um, it it can only move in one dimension. The more will just push it wider. So I need, if it's in relation to a certain uh, a lover or whatever, I need I need more contact. And then at a certain point, that's exhausted because I can't have any more contact with you, or I get tired because you're just one-dimensional. There's not more to discover in you, so I go chasing someone else, um, or I have affairs, or I just, uh, you know, whatever it is, or I have this car and then I need another car, uh, whatever it is. I've been on holiday here now; I need to go there. Um, and there's not, you know, it's not coming from a sort of badness in the self, it's just coming from a limitation of the soul-making dynamic. So it becomes this kind of chasing of experiences or or trying to accumulate and acquire experiences. And because it's flat and and it doesn't have the other dimensionalities to open up, to create, discover, to be revealed, to move into, um, it becomes in some way or another just a chasing of pleasantness, pleasant sensations and a, a kind of avoiding of unpleasant and, and this kind of movement to kind of somehow prop up through this accumulation of experience the ego moving in a one-dimensional world. And, you know, part of the, I would say, tragedy of all this is in our contemporary Western society, it's actually um, nowadays quite possible to keep chasing this quite a long time, even for people who don't conceive themselves um, as kind of in the rich um, kind of uh, portion of society, even people um, who uh, don't uh, are not of of um, 
you know, relatively speaking, in terms of Western society, are not of uh, the sort of greater means financially, etc., still possible. How many TV stations are available? How much different kind of food experience is available? How much cheap holidays are available? So it's actually, unfortunately, quite possible, with all the effects this has on the environment, etc., etc., and uh, all kinds of other stuff, it's actually quite possible, unfortunately, to keep chasing this um, really quite far down the line. And um, there's an endlessness possible here, but it's flat. And what's not recognized is um, that there's, uh, uh, it, it doesn't come, it's one dimension, doesn't come alive as fantasy. It's all conceived as real. A real self having a uh, possibility of accumulating or possessing real objects or real experiences in a real world. And if we are viewing it critically from a Dharma perspective, um, the eros there, or the desire, the craving there, uh, better, so to speak, is also a real thing. And, of course, some people from a Buddhist perspective some say, well, that's not a path, that's, a, that's not being on a path. It's, it's samsara, this endless flowing on. Sara means to flow. Uh, this endless flowing on, this endless chasing, endless thirst of tanha. But that's one um, possibility of uh, what happens uh, with sort of the germ of Eros, if you like. Coming back to what people would consider, because that is a kind of path, I suppose, but people would generally not consider that path. But if we come back to Buddhist people would not consider it a path, a legitimate path. But if we come back to um, Buddhist versions, if you like, then there are some... Buddhisms, if you like, and particularly perhaps some, uh, what some people would associate or call uh, themselves by kind of some secular approaches, let's say, to practice or Buddhism, or even they wouldn't call it Buddhism or whatever. Um, so some of, of some approaches, some um, again conceptions or uh, fantasies of the path. Um, would state right away that there is no beyond. Um, and certainly not a beyond that's anything other than uh, a fantasy in the poor sense of the word, a hope, uh, a kind of wish fulfillment, a consolation, etc. There's no real beyond. Any beyond that you might <coughs> um, conceive of or harbour from this point of view is what, what might be what some people would call, that's just metaphysics. It's, uh, in other words, nonsense. And uh, in this view or this approach to, to a path, uh, notice something that the path is the goal. There's very little difference uh, between the path and the goal. So both path and goal um, are described or characterized or constituted by just there is this life, there is this experience of life, this finite life. It's finite in a number of ways. But this finite life um, needs to be the path and the goal is just the meeting of, uh, the meeting this life. Being open to it, meeting it, um, letting it touch us, um, coping with that repeatedly and endlessly until there is death and the extinction of the um, consciousness at death, um, in this view, then there's just an endless kind of repetition of m- meeting life 
life with its finitude, with its tragedy, etc., and uh, with its limitations and its existential limitations, just endlessly meeting and coping with those, uh, with what life is. Um, again, conceived pretty flatly, pretty one-dimensionally, and with strong existential limits and finiteness to it in different ways. Or there's a kind of arrival at some point as a, at a kind of stance of resignation, we could say, um, uh, being resigned to this is all that life is. It's not more than this. Um, and, or, or you could call that, some people would call it as equanimity uh, rather than resignation, whatever. It kind of amounts to the same thing. In the face of reality, of life, which is construed as real, and the real, to borrow a certain phrase from some contemporary philosophers, facticities. It's a funny word, because um, they want to avoid words like truth. So, but this is what's conceived of real, this life, this that I see in the senses that appears, you know, this is what things are, this is what life is. In this view, life is just what it seems to be. It's what it seems to be. It's what most people would agree on. And in the path, then notice there's not more than what seems obvious to most people through the senses, through the understanding of what life is and what existence is. There's not much more than that to discover and to open to. So, in this sense, there's not much beyond what I already know. Awakening is not um, constituted and does not involve much more than I already know, already realize, already experience. There's not much of a beyond there to discover, etc., to open to. Still, though, um, notice what happens with this. Eros... If it, if it exists in the soul, it comes in and it starts doing something. And so life, in this view, starts to get a capital L. Um, and life starts to get romanticized in a little bit, in different ways, and kind of elevated. Now it might be the elevation of touch of the breeze on the cheek and the moment-to-moment flow of existence. Um, but some way or other, um, whether, actually whether it started that way with a certain um, kind of romantic view of life, or, or the eros comes in and tends to um, elevate an element because it's, it's impregnating it with what eros does to a certain extent, but it's, it, but it's limited by the view. So one possibility with this is that life gets capital L and then part of life, part of existence, part of the world is, um, if you like, or part of the sense of the world and of existence is the sense of the sublime. And that too is maybe given a capital S. Um, and, and you may know this from, uh, I think it originated with some of the romantic poets and painters. So for example, um, William Turner and people like that. I can't remember who else. And what that really is, is the, the sublime, is really something that is beautiful, sensually beautiful, but also terrifying. It's this mixture of um, beautiful and terrifying because it's so much bigger than the small, fragile, um, relatively, well, yeah, fragile, puny, but fragile me, self. So wrapped up in this sublime is some sort of some sort of aesthetic sensibility um, mixed with a good dose of um, kind of feeling almost in 
overwhelmed by um, or trembling in kind of existential fear at the hugeness of things. Wrapped up in it too is the kind of the tragedy of impermanence. Um, so this is what life is, the sublime and the tragedy of impermanence. And, and we are asked in this path to face that, to open to it, to feel the poignancy of it. All these become quite central <coughs> aspects of the path. Now this constitutes, constellates a kind of beyond, beyond me, beyond the, the fragility of me, also beyond my existence. Because my erasure in non-existence at death, which could happen any time, and, uh, and, and the tragedy of that disappearance and that erasure, that too is a kind of beyond me. So there's a kind of beyond here that's allowed by the limited logos um, and other limitations that might come in there. But any other, bo- any other beyond is... is um, either just doesn't occur to the person, or they're, they're, they're not interested in it, or, as I said, it's flatly disallowed. A priori, from the beginning, it's ruled out. Completely disqualified as a possibility. So that, again, the path, the sense of the path, the, the conception and um, image of the path or of awakening is becomes about, principally about, coping with this. And this meaning life conceived and sensed in a certain way, with its existential limits, with its kind of inherent meaninglessness as well. That's also, and its inherent tragedy. And this is, um, these factors, these aspects, uh, come to the fore, and that's what the path becomes about, coping with this. So in this kind of approach, the eros and the um, soul-making dynamic, the eros and the eros-psyche-logos dynamic, are limited. They're quite limited here, partly because of the realism. It's just that this is real. Nothing else is allowed. This view is what reality is. This is the, again, the facticity, if those words are used. Oftentimes words like truth are avoided, but this is real. And because of that realist basis, and because of the refusal of any more dimensions to existence, to discover, to open to, to know, to penetrate, um, there's a one-dimensionality, and that one-dimensionality and the realism at the base of the view limits um, the eros psychologos and also the how much eros can may con- constellate or gather from that. So in this view, there's a kind of rhetoric of, or, or this uh, approach to the path, there's a kind of rhetoric of this, of being in touch with this, etc., and everything we said, but not the um, rhetoric of, or, or the invitation to a any kind of opening or knowing or experiencing of what is beyond what is already pretty obvious. Uh, There's a little bit of that, but not much. There's many reasons, uh, uh, many possible reasons why (coughs) that kind of view um, for many people has gained a lot of traction and uh, um, is even attractive or, or or seems kind of inevitable or the only one they can get behind. Um, the rise of secularism, of course, the domination of views of scientific materialism, the movement of kind of existentialism in philosophy and psychology and psychoanalysis um, in the 20th century. Um, so there's many, many reasons. We don't have to go into that. Um, uh, and just to say, you know, 
and I know you've heard me speak quite, uh, what's the word, with a critique of this kind of thing in the past, but I really want to say, this is perfectly valid and okay for some, um, for some people. It really, um, you know, maybe it suits their soul. Maybe for them, that view of the path, that concept of the path and awakening, um, is actually soul-making for them to, it, to the degree that satisfies their soul and their eros. Maybe um, a set of fantasies um, of the self and the path and the Buddha and what awakening is constellate around that whole view, in, in and imbue that view and form that view. Um, in a way that's, to some degree, um, soul-making, or to the degree that satisfies their soul. Um, so I really want to say, it's, it's completely okay. And again, the question is, is it soul-making? Is it soul-making? Is it soul-making for you? Is it soul-making for me or someone else? Um, and again, you know, um, it, it might be that... Uh, that such a view satisfies because there's not much eros um, in in that particular soul, and that's completely okay. Why should there be? Who's to say that's a good thing or a bad thing or whatever? It's fine. It's just natural, maybe. And so there's not that much eros, psyche, logos, dynamic expansion, the fire of that, etc. Or, but the question is really why, and and is it soul making, or is there? Um, uh, you know, anti-libidinal patterns or blocks in the logos or rigidity um, or fear or whatever it is that's actually coming in and blocking the whole thing. So it's not actually um, as soul-making as it could be or not, so to speak, genuine, authentic to that soul. These, to me, are the more important questions. Not, is it right? Is it wrong? Is it what the Buddha said? Is it... um, This is all a whole other level of, um, uh, you know view and story and soul-making uh, <coughs> fantasy that comes in around that. Or, you know, the other possibility is what, what can happen. Someone starts with that, that kind of view and that sense and that concept of the path. That's what they're given um, to understand from what they've encountered or read or what they've been taught. But that person has a lot of eros in their soul, so to speak, and the eros is not being blocked um, or rather the blocks are not sufficiently rigid, the walls there are not sufficiently rigid to prevent the eros, um, the eros psyche logos dynamic pushing on those walls and stretching the view um, and stretching the possibilities of experience that then that person opens to and stretching the logos and the conception, the whole sense of what awakening can be and what the path then is, either stretching it gradually or in stages or shattering that view, breaking those walls, this breaking of the vessels I've talked about before. Uh, the Shivarata Kilian they talk about in certain streams of, of uh, Kabbalistic teaching. And and because of the Eros and the aliveness of the Eros, the expansion of that and the breaking of those walls and a new conception needs to a bigger conception um, that allows more and a bigger fantasy that allows more um, needs to be consolated in construction. Because some people do have a lot of fire, a lot of soul, a lot of eros, and there will be this um, movement to expansion. Oftentimes there's a quickness with that. 
And there is the, all the, the multidimensional, multi-aspected fertility of the Eurosyche Logos. And they need, or they create, or they discover, or they open to more. <clears throat> okay, so um, a fourth possibility um, is what we might call classically a kind of tantric view or a set of views uh, that we might call tantric um, uh, as, as a way of conceiving the path and awakening, uh, etc. In If you see in a lot of those tantric uh, um, tankas or icons, paintings or sometimes sculptures, um, there's the depiction of a Buddha as actually um, a couple in in uh, sexual uh, sexual union, in erotic sexual union. There's the yabyum. So, and usually it's male, female, and the Buddha and the consort, but the totality is actually conceived as the Buddha. So it's not like the Buddha and something else. The totality of that union um, is is the Buddha, or is a Buddha, and that is, it represents, it conveys through an image, a vision and a conception of awakening. So there is the union, depicted sexually, there is the union of emptiness and appearances. Uh, sometimes it's conceived that way. Emptiness in that view, often in the tantric view, doesn't only mean emptiness of inherent existence in the way that I've mostly explained it in the past. It means really um, uh, 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 a transcend. Uh, how to say this? Um, a non-dual awareness, a non-dual wisdom awareness, a gnosis, um, a jnana, a non-dual wisdom awareness that is not separate from appearances, that is empty in itself, and uh, that knows the emptiness of all things. So that uh, that jnana is actually what emptiness means in some tantric traditions, not just the emptiness of inherent existence. And that is, as I said, in, in erotic union, in sexual union, with not separate from the senses, the world, experience of the senses, appearances, and those appearances are um, empty and divine. Or some, in some uh, explanations, this yabyum, this erotic union, sexual union that's depicted there, is depicted as the union of prajna and upaya. Wisdom, which again is this wisdom consciousness, this wisdom awareness, this gnosis of, of, of a Buddha, of a fully enlightened being, uh, which is what I said before, this jnana, um, this knowing, this empty knowing, pervasive, universal, uh, cosmic awareness um, of emptiness. Non-dual, not separate from means. So there's wisdom and means, the two uh, kind of treasures of a fully enlightened being. Wisdom and means. And the means is not just skill in teaching, it actually refers to in its deeper meaning, the upaya, means the mandala, which is the world, the world of divine appearances that appears to that wisdom awareness. So there's this union of wisdom and means, which effectively means of subject and object of um, uh, wisdom awareness, uh, if you like, and and world of psyche and physis of of uh, soul and the world, soul and the world of the senses, the world of appearances. Now, in classic tantra, uh, at least at some streams that I'm familiar with, uh, that would that um, 
that constitutes a beyondness. So this this knowing that is is um, sorry in all in all that constitutes a beyondness, something that I'm not quite fully realised yet that I want to know, want to experience. But the the um, notice that the um, divinity there and the beyondness there is both in a in the divine appearances, but they also have a place for the transcendent, the non-fabrication of perception and experience. So both are there. And there's um, the tantric instruction, the instruction in the Vajrayana, the thrust for me, the central thrust of that um, uh, that whole yana, really, um, of Vajrayana, of seeing, sensing, knowing, recognizing all experiences as divine. Not just empty of inherent existence, but divine and empty of inherent existence. Knowing all experiences, not just some experiences, all experiences. So there's this these crazy teachings about eating feces and eating semen and, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, seeing unethical actions, all of it as, as divine. Can I see all of that as divine? Now, um, you're probably aware by now that what we're teaching here, what we call imaginal practice or soul-making, that whole movement, there's a lot of parallels and connection points with that whole direction and movement of Vajrayana teaching and Tantric teaching. They're not the same, and I wouldn't want to equate them or claim that. Um, But there's a lot of parallels there, obviously, with what we're teaching. Um, And both of those streams, just like the Tantric, it... Uh, the soul-making direction, or soul-make, the sense of what the path as a, a path of soul-making, the sense of awakening as a movement into soul-making, the movement of soul-making, um, gives place to and gives a, an important place to um, the imaginal. Yes, that's characteristic of both tantric practice and soul-making practice, of course. And that includes the intra-psychic imaginal, of course, but also the imaginal pervading the world and opening up the world of the senses. So there's not just this transcendence, there's this opening um, to the senses and the um, inclusion of the senses as part of the path. And there's a set. There's the possibility of divinity in not just transcendent to the senses, but in and through the senses in what we talked about theophany and cosmopoesis. So the possibilities of beyondness here to open to, to know, to fully penetrate, to fully explore and become intimate with, and all that um, are many. In fact, they're unlimited. They're infinite. Do you get that? There's infinite possibilities of beyondnesses to know, because the the ways that theophanies can, the possibilities for theophany and the possibilities for cosmopoesis um, are are unlimited, and the possibilities for imaginal divinity is just infinite. There's no limit on the soul-making uh, creativity there and discovery there. Notice, too, that in this uh, way of conceiving things, awakening to the goal or fruit of the path, um, awakening to becomes or is something infinite and something open-ended. In the the Vajrayana conception, because only a Buddha 
has that kind of awareness, is actually able to fully, for example, able to fully see the emptiness of things without that perception of whatever thing they're um, perceiving fading. So only a, only a Buddha, not an Arahant, not anyone else, um, is 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 able to both fully perceive and cognize the emptiness of something and perceive that something at the same time. And so they have this full awareness of emptiness and divinity um, at the same time. Only a Buddha. And no one's going to say, I'm a Buddha, or I have reached, or even think, I have reached that. So there's a kind of open-endedness, effectively, that um, become, constellates the path, as part of the path. becomes an open end. I'm not there yet. I'm not there yet. Not only that. You, do you see what I mean? Um... Uh, and and from the soul making conception, or in that in that conception of that as the path and that as the movement, um, because of the infinitude of possibilities of the eros psyche logos dynamic in what it creates and discovers and what is revealed there and open to there, um, uh, the path is also an awakening is also open ended. At what point of this soul making dynamic am I going to draw a line and say that's awakening now? Finished. Notice, too, something even more radical, that um, in different ways with the tantric conception and with the soul-making conception, let's just focus on the soul-making conception now, there's similarities, but um, let's just focus on that for now. There's a primacy given, I've talked about this before, a primacy um, um, granted or um, recognized, the primacy of image primacy of fantasy. And so that we come to recognize at a certain point that um, our sense of the path, our conception of it, our fantasy of the path, of awakening, of Buddha, of self on the path, um, is, is fantasy, is grounded in image. That's a really, really radical um, re- uh, framing and uh, of the of of the whole venture, a really radical realization, a really radical uh, reconstitution there. With this soul making, as I touched on just now, um, what happens then? Let me ask you: if I get, if you get the sense of this this movement. Um, what happens to to the whole um, idea of attainment? There's just this infinite possibility of opening of the soul making. It's endless, yeah, potentially, unlimited. What happens to the idea of attainment? What happens to the self sense in relationship to? whatever happens to the idea of attainment and the idea of attainment. What happens to that whole <coughs> um, self-measurement <coughs> um, construction? You understand? So there's quite a lot to notice here, and I'll just point a few things out. They're all connected, so it's not a particular order, but I um, just want to point out a few things uh, in addition to what I've already pointed out. Uh, 
and uh, some of them we've already touched on, but just to draw them out a bit more and make sure you realize them, um, you recognize them. So no let's notice a few things here that, and this I've already said, but just to, uh, to reiterate it, um, <coughs> in the, um, what I was calling the traditional, let's say, perspective on things, um, this movement either towards the transcendent unfabricated or to some point of oneness, universal oneness, excuse me, of some different kind on that, um, on that spectrum of lessening fabrication. Um, the, uh, if you like, the, 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 the stages in that, um, on that thread, on that spectrum, are actually, for a start, they're limited in one direction. So there's just a movement of lessening fabrication. And we could probably enumerate the kind of, how many, it kind of, typical experiences there are of different kinds of oneness, etc., and eventually this transcendent unfabricated. There's a kind of finite series um, of perceptions, of openings to different dimensions, um, different kinds of, actually, senses of divinity, really, um, that, that go with those openings <coughs> um, when they're very strong and deep for the, for the being, for the opening <coughs> of the, the consciousness there. But they, there's a finite series, and that series moves in, if you like, one direction, the direction of lessening fabrication. might get flavoured a little bit differently, say with uh, yeah, tender compassion versus awareness or whatever. There's, there's a few different flavours, but they tend to be... Um, th- th- there's a finite series that are sort of grouped together around a sort of s- around the spectrum of lessening fabrication. In contrast to that, um, the s- we're trying to open up as a kind of, if you like, the, a, a path that um, really places soul making quite centrally, and or at least has a place for soul making, would allow and give a place to all that, definitely that movement along the spectrum of uh, lessening fabrication, all the different finite series of kind of perceptions of oneness and less fabrication, eventually non-fabrication, that happen along that spectrum. But in addition, there there is an infinity uh, of other possible directions because of the endless diversity and creativity of the imaginal faculty, the imaginal dimension. So that theophany can happen, uh, theophanies can take this form or that form or this character or that flavor. Um, So instead of just going along one line um, into less fabrication, having a few (coughs) kind of similarish kind of experiences that are quite common for spiritual practitioners um, who practice with a lot of dedication and depth, um, there's actually it kind of moves out in every possible direction. All the uh, kind of creativity and discovery that can happen, different kinds of cosmopolises, different kinds of theophany. You understand? Um, second thing, and again, I've, I've touched on this too, just briefly, but um, <clears throat> Some, actually probably often, but um, some kind of conceptions of the path more than others, or fantasies of the path more than others, um, don't realize or would really 
be very reluctant to admit or refuse to admit that, that fantasy is part of the whole uh, movement there and part of what's constellated there. That there is um, fantasy of the Buddha. Um, fantasy of what awakening is, fantasies of the self in relationship with tradition, in relationship to what the path is and moving on the path. Um, so do not realizing that, or admitting that, and also I'm, I'm thinking of particularly of the third one um, where there's no beyond and there's this kind of, <clears throat> kind of almost like existentialist kind of Buddhism that's popular in some some of some of the people uh, who conceive themselves as sec secular Buddhists or whatever, um, but not necessarily. Anyway, um, there's uh, that the whole thing is kind of dependent on realism, that the world really is like this, that the existential limitations are real as I perceive them, that um, uh, this is said the facticity might avoid the word truth, but the whole kind of sense of what would happen to the sense of tragedy, what would happen to the bra bravery that's required there um, to open to that and feel the poignancy of it, if I acknowledge that it may not be real, that this is just one view, one way of looking, one perception, the whole thing collapses without the realized realism that underpins it and the belief in the reality of this uh, difficult existential situa situation, that's the reality of things. The whole thing collapses. It has no, it can have no traction and no, no kind of power. Um, and it's hard then to create a fantasy around it. Hard for, um, for it to become really sustaining. <clears throat> Third thing to point out right now, um, and again, I touched on this before, or hinted at it before. Notice that in each of these, the four um, possibilities I, I gave, um, so the traditional possibility of moving towards the unfabricated or different kinds of oneness, um, the possibility, uh, what was the second one, the possibility of um, just... Uh, moving in the world, really, um, acquiring more experiences because there is no dimensionality uh, and just kind of craving, essentially. Um, the third possibility of this kind of um, insisting on one dimensionality, but then the path is kind of coping with that and, and being resigned and having some equanimity in relation to that. Um, opening to that reality of the one-dimensionality of existence, etc. And the fourth possibility, what we're calling the tantric or the, the soul-making vision um, and conception. In each of those four, or rather each of those four, implies something um, with respect to the senses and the world, to how we then view and relate to the senses and the world um, as part of the path or as not part of the path or just how the path situates itself and awa awakening uh, however it's conceived in each of those four <coughs> um, types uh, how it situates itself in regard to the senses. So for example that what I was calling the traditional view, that whole movement to the transcendent unfabricated beyond the senses, beyond any kind of um, remotely like, uh, uh, anything remotely like sense experience, 
Um, and that movement towards the ending of rebirth, if it's really classically um, <coughs> conceived, um, that says something about the world of the senses, and you get this in the Pali Canon. It's something to be let go of. It's n- it has nothing really to do with the path. There's nothing good in the world of the senses. Um, it's just something to be yeah put up with in this lifetime, but eventually to be transcended. In the one-dimensional view, in the craving kind of samsara non-path kind of view, the the um, senses are. One one is just trying to acquire them, you know. In the uh, you, you see, they they all imply something about the, the the senses and the relationship we have or the path has, um, and then the the view and the attitude constellated with respect to the senses in the world. In the soul making or tantric view, um, there is a beyond, but that beyond. Um, includes, yes, a transcendent beyond, but also the beyond in and through the senses. So there's a beyond, so to speak, that's not beyond the senses. In and through this experience of of this beloved other, this tree, nature, the world, my body, whatever it is, when we come into erotic imaginal relationship with that thing, that sense experience, um, it... uh, there is a beyondness. There's more to it. There's more to fathom, to connect with, to open to, to discover, to uh, re- be revealed, to enjoy, to penetrate, etc. So we'll come back to this more, um, the implications for the senses. Uh, and related to that, there's an implication of each of these uh, kind of uh, conceptions of the path um, with the whole um, movement of fabrication. So again, in the transcendent model, the movement is to end fabrication. The whole thrust is towards less and less fabrication. Everything on the path, in a, in a classically conceived model, moves in the, in the direction of less fabrication. Pretty much everything on the path. And eventually one wants to um, not fabricate at all, have that experience enough that there's um, this complete non-fabrication um, of the world of experience. And that's the, um, there's the elevation of that. Whereas in the soul-making view or the tantric view, there's the recognition of the importance of that, but also the recognition of um, skillful, or let's say soul-making fabrication, beautiful fabrication. One knows it's empty, sees image as image, and one um, consents to, allows, opens to, supports that the beauty of the soul-making fabrication. So can you see, do you realize how, um, of course, the questions that I asked you right at the beginning of this talk are, um, were potentially, of course, questions about Eros. I don't know if you see too implied in what I've just been saying um, in the last few minutes that if the Eros is strong and if it's allowed then um, the uh, 
the sort of one-dimensional view won't be enough. It will, as I said, it will crack at a certain point or be expanded at a certain point. If the eros is strong and if the eros is allowed, it will expand the actual view and conception and image, if you like, of path and awakening and all of that beyond. It has to. It has to open up more dimensions and then thus more possibilities and more of a sense of beyond to discover. And if eros is allowed to impregnate and, and uh, uh, catalyze the eros psyche logos dynamic and the soul making dynamic the, the view of um, a one dimensionality where I'm just endlessly chasing more experiences and pleasure etc um, for the ego um, horizontally wider and wider that also um, it won't be enough, something will open up and realize, oh, I can get, there's another kind of more, other kinds of more I can get as I go deeper, as the dimensionality opens, and the facets of things open. But actually, what I want to say more than that right now is <clears throat> that if the Eros is strong, and if it's allowed, and if it's allowed to um, uh, galvanize that Eros Psyche Logos dynamic, and if that's allowed to to self-fertilize and do its thing, and um, then both the um, eros for the transcendent and the eros for the what we might call the imminent, the sense of beyondness in and through the uh, world of sense experience, the sense of divinity in and through the world of uh, the world and the world of sense experiences, both the transcendent thrust, the transcendent opening and the imminent, uh, or the opening to the imminence, the divine imminence, um, both will eventually be open to, just because of the um, uh, tendency to um, unlimited and multidirectional expansion of the Eurosychologist dynamic. Do you understand? And that could happen in any order. Someone might be really at the begin, you know, really want to know the transcendent. That's really uh, what they want to move towards. But when they've opened to that, when they've experienced uh, that, and so to speak, drunk from that well, and that whole spectrum, then something might um, turn around back to the world of the senses, and and that might start opening up through. Uh, in, in its imminence and the sense of divine imminence there and the whole soul-making dynamic with relationship to the senses. Or someone else might do it the other way around and the soul-making happens first with the imaginal and the whole world of the senses and then at some point the eros-psychologos dynamic also recognizes that another kind of dimensionality can be had in, in the progressive lessening of fabrication of perception. But if the eros is full enough it will actually eventually want both. And and why not have both? Why not be able to move into both? Not in any particular order necessarily. It could happen both ways. So these four possibilities that I've um, described a little bit is not intended to be an exhaustive list. But there are um, possibilities for the ways we um, conceive or imagine the direction and the aim of our path or that anyone conceives or, or fantasizes the directional aim of the path now I know this is a lot and I'm, I really uh, don't want to overload you here um, so 
but as much as there are, or as well as there being um, conceptions and fantasies of the direction and the aim, we can also um, kind of open up an investigation of the um, fantasies of the self on the path. Um, now this is connected with the, uh, what we've just been through. Um, and again, I don't mean to be exhaustive here, but let's mention... Um, uh, I just want to mention this because we'll, we'll actually come back to it. Tomorrow. I just want to mention that. We'll come back to it tomorrow. Um, we could, for example... Um, delineate a few possibilities um, of different fantasies. The way the self um, imagines or conceives kind of what it's doing on the path, its relationship with tradition, um, with uh, the job that it has to do, if you like. Um, so this is a little bit different, but related to what we just talked about. And again, this, this list is not exhaustive. So we could, um, and most people do, I think, conceive of the path in, in what I might call the fantasy or the conception of the medical patient or the medical doctor. So this is actually the Buddha's original teaching. It presented his path in the, the what was then the language of the doctor's diagnosis, prognosis, and prescription, etc., all that. So basically, basically, the part we we tend to talk and conceive of the path as a movement um, towards either eradicating suffering or, for most people, just reducing suffering, so that it's the increase of peace, calmness, and well-being, and um, getting rid of or or reducing suffering. Um, and so we are the patient, so to speak, receiving the uh, medicine, the prescription from the Buddha, from the teacher, or some of you teaching already, and in that case you are the, the doctor prescribing that. And so there's this kind of very, this is extremely common because it's, it's, um, uh, it's the language of the Four Noble Truths, which is the kind of principal building block of Buddhism. It's conceived and presented as a movement about what? About the first noble truth, about suffering, and the investigation of the cause of it, and the movement um, beyond, or uh, to lessen it in the third truth, and how that happens in the fourth truth. So the whole structure of Buddhism, the whole, again, um, uh, language and conception of it is very much planted in or imbued with a whole kind of medical uh, medical patient, medical doctor, if you like, um, image and conception. A second possibility that's very common is to uh, have a kind of what I would call a religious fantasy of the, the path and the self on the path, in which... Um, as is characteristic of religious movements, the authority is in the past. Um, so there's a great emphasis on tradition, and what one is doing, that the self then, in this path, um, or in this fantasy of the path, in the religious fantasy, is really attempting to kind of reproduce um, uh, an awakening that has been achieved and taught by some uh, religious figure, authority in the past. So it's it's um, it looks to the past, and in its tendency to kind of um, scrutinize texts and be kind of uh, 
seek authority in in the past, in the text, in the explanation of the Buddha. The Buddha said this, the Buddha this, the Buddha that. Um, and then what I'm trying to do is kind of have some kind of awakening that's um, to some extent um, replicating the awakening that the Buddha had. That's the kind of awakening that I'm going for. <clears throat> Moving through these very briefly, we're going to come back to it. So this is the medical patient, uh, this is the, the religious fantasy, the second one. The third fantasy, and I think this is quite unusual, is the fantasy of the scientific researcher. So that one is on the path, but one is perhaps motivated more by curiosity. I'm curious about consciousness. I'm curious about states of consciousness. I'm curious about perception. I'm curious about what can be discovered there. I open to the fantasy and the possibility that I might discover new things um, about consciousness and we might discover new possibilities of perception and conception and experience and theories and all of that. Um, In that model, the ending of suffering or even the reduction of suffering may at times not be um, the primary thing primary thing is interest, curiosity, understanding, opening of the uh, discovery. A fourth possibility is what I call the artist fantasy. And again here, um, you know, and I've talked about this in the past, what's the point of art? Uh, What's art for? I don't think there's an answer to that question. Human beings cannot... um, fully circumscribe or define or capture what motivates us, um, what motivates an artist, what motivates our love of art. What is it that the artist, why is the artist doing what they do? Some art is for, you know, makes a political statement or it tries to alleviate suffering in some way, but most art has nothing to do with that. It's well beyond the um, uh, medical fantasy, the artist fantasy. To do with beauty, yes. To do with creativity, yes. And what's the relationship with the past then? We might, as an artist, an artist might imitate past masters and know how to do this style or that style, but the conception of art more generally is of something open-ended, just as mm, some conceptions of science are. They look more to the future rather than the past in the religious fantasy. An artist, I don't know what new forms, what new ways of thinking about art, what new creations will come. It's not just that we're trying to reproduce something from the past. And what's it for? What part does beauty in the, in the range of that word play in that? So there's four. When a person might have an adventure, a fancy, the path is just an adventure. Maybe I'm slaying demons, or maybe I'm just, don't know what. Um, or it could be, uh, that could be a fifth one, or a sixth one is a lover. The whole path is, is kind of fantasied as a lover. And what does a lover, what, what's the movement of a lover, or the fantasy, or the sense of self, the path as lover? Lover of what? And what do lovers want? And what do lovers do? We're going to talk more about this, <coughs> but... Um, I don't know if you can get the sense, I've, I've alluded to it already, how each of these kind of has um, casts um, in, in, the, uh, in, in the larger imaginal constellation that each one of these fantasies casts. The past 
is cast in a certain way. How I view, again, authority, the past of the Buddha, etc., um, the, 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 the tradition, etc., my relationship with that, and also the future and the direction. Also cast differently is what the self does, what is the job of the self, what is the interest or the priority of the self, what gives joy and what um, supports eros. So all of these are, are different depending on the fantasy. Yeah? Eros and image go together, so of course it's dependent on that. So here's some questions, again, unfair, too quick, etc. But do you realize that you have a fantasy of the path and of the self of the path and of awakening? Do you realize that there's fantasy operating there? Maybe that's a better way of putting it. Can you, I mean, implicit in that, in my usage of the words fantasy, is, is not that it's a bad thing at all, opposite, important thing, necessary thing, beautiful thing, gives rise to beauty. But do you realize that it's there, that fantasy is there? Do you recognize what it is? Or, let's say, what's, what are the dominant fantasies? might be more than one. Do you recognize what they are for you? what it is for you, what's dominant, what fantasy dominates, tends to dominate. And this can be complex, I'm aware of this, because there can be mixed or different periods or times in our practice where one or the other is the dominant fantasy or different in relationship to different streams of practice. But can you start to get a feel for this? Are you aware of it? More, I mean, well, really importantly, I'd say, um, am I, are you locked in to a certain fantasy? There's just, I'm just locked into that medical model. I'm trying to fit everything into that. And the whole way I construe the path and the self and my movement is that, or is in the religious model, or whatever it is. Where am I... Um, in how well I have replicated what I hear my teacher or other teachers um, talk about or describe what they seem to be living. Am I locked in to a certain fantasy or fantasies? Or is there flexibility? Is there some creativity for the whole way I um, Im imagine myself in relation to the tradition, in relation to the goal or the aim or the direction in relation to all of that. Locked in or flexible? And again, <clears throat> and sorry, I know this is quick, is it authentic? In other words, where has this fantasy come from? Am I just adopting the medical fantasy and fitting myself into that? Because that's the way that 99% of teachings are presented, not just in Buddhism either. Talk about freedom, talk about liberation, talk about healing, talk about um, meeting suffering or easing pain or peace or well-being or whatever, you know, different flavors. And, and that's so much the tenor of the language, so much the presentation, that we just can't help thinking that way. 
And also in this sense of like, well, he was the Buddha, or they are this teacher, and they must know, and therefore I, I'm trying to replicate that. Is it authentic? And, and, and I'm not saying these are bad at all, but the question we have, maybe not more appropriate now, is, is it authentic to you? And again, the better question, is it soul-making? Are the fantasies that are in play, the fantasy in which you move, and in which your path moves, and which, if you like, cast the path before you, gold dust, we cast a path. Uh, are they soul-making for you? Is it soul-making for you? Do we realize, do you realize the implications of um, just the fact that there is um, fantasy operating in our construal, in our relationship, in our conception of path, of awakening, of Buddha, of teacher, of self from the path? you realize the implications of that? sorry, more questions, but if, <clears throat> going back to the questions we asked at the beginning about what you want from the path, if you answered um, to those original questions that you, you wanted peace or you wanted ease or you wanted less suffering or whatever it is, um, just to check, and I, I asked this at the beginning, check, is, is it only that that you want? Is it only ease or peace? or less suffering. Certainly at times that's the dominant thing that we want, and probably appropriately. But I just, I'm not saying it should be or it shouldn't be or whatever, just check. Is that all you want? The ending or even just the reduction of suffering if you want just peace, just ease. <clears throat> I think it's worth pointing out, and I, I know that this is I know it's quite radical, you know, but I think it's worth pointing out that if we emphasize the medical patient or medical doctor fantasy as kind of um, the thing that we most emphasize, the fantasy that we most emphasize, or that's most fundamental, if that's what we um, emphasize as the most fundamental fantasy, so it's all right to have a bit of the artist or a bit of the adventurer or a bit of the lover or whatever, but um, or the scientific research, whatever it is, but most fundamental is this medical patient, medical doctor fantasy. I think it's worth pointing out that it's probably going to then that giving it kind of fundamental status somehow. Even if we're not, you're not usually conscious of this. Um, that will probably limit the soul making potential. If that medical patient fantasy is too fundamental in uh, how you're conceiving of your path or how you're teaching. Soul-making may then be allowed, of course, but it, it's somehow always within or in the service of the medical fantasy or the medical model. So soul-making is good because it presents different ways of healing or, or whatever. Of course, we could ask, what does healing mean? And we could talk about the healing of the soul in a bigger sense than just healing of suffering. What does that mean, the healing of perception? I've touched on this before. 
Tikkun Olam, the restore, the healing of the world, of the healing of the perception of of, of the the soul making, the opening of the soul making. And with the artist fancy, of course, you could consider what does the artist make? Well, the artist is creating what? One answer could be is making soul. In the poetry of perception, is making soul. The artist makes soul, makes soul, creates soul. Um, we could construe that's the kind of the purpose of the artist. And the researcher is researching soul. So you could construe it this way. And the lover, what does the lover want? What does the lover love? Your your lover. Not an abstract lover, your lover. The lover in you. <clears throat> or the hermit in you. What do they want? So again, you can <clears throat> take away these questions, or if you're listening on tape, press pause at any time and sit with them if they feel fruitful, if they <clears throat> interesting and opening. But what is what what is your response, or what responses um, are kind of uh, triggered in you when you realise that your love and your devotion to the path, your love of the path, your devotion to the path, and all that that's involved in that, Um, when you realize that it's partly at least based on and imbued with fantasy, how does your heart respond to that? How does your thinking respond? How does your body respond? How does your soul respond? And you realize there's a certain basis in fantasy, a certain inextricably inextricable uh, involvement of fantasy. What's the response of the soul, the response in the body? <clears throat> and if it, you feel like somehow this takes the rug out from underneath things, and there's a kind of deconstruction of the fantasy and the concept of the path, and um, that that doesn't last. If that's if that's even what happens, but that that won't last because we we need to construct and we do construct. So the question becomes, what is constructed in the aftermath of that deconstruction? There will be a construction. What is constructed? And is what's constructed a realist construction given a kind of realist um, belief and conception as a basis or not? So if there's a deconstruction, what is constructed in this aftermath? And is it realist construction or not? You know, with all this, we could ask, what is, what is driving and pulling me? 
What is driving and pulling all this, all this love and dedication? <coughs> well, it's Eros. Well, that's a big part of it. Eros is involved. And where does that come from? Where does it come from? We can say the soul loves soul-making. We said that, I think, as a kind of axiom. The soul loves soul-making. So the eros is for soul-making. The eros of the soul is for soul-making. The soul loves soul-making. But whose eros is it? Whose soul-making is it? Whose soul-making is it? Whose soul is getting made, so to speak? So then with all those, what is, the <coughs> what, what is the view that I have of this Eros? What is my relationship with this Eros? Those questions uh, have, a, have a, a large bearing on that. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.